0: Creative. so many people are going to tell you that you can't do it but we're here to tell you that you definitely can right let's do a podcast bonjour rebels good time something different continental feel <laughs>
1: we're back in europe now after a great week in america yeah
0: i'm tired here eh?
1: oh, i'm absolutely knackered yeah Dead. and we did that event last night as well yeah, good event now was. You did a that really was. good job at that. So that was your first panel hosting.
0: Thanks, mate. Yeah, I did. I hosted a panel, um, which is really which is really hard because you have to basically take the spotlight off yourself, and your job is just to get the the guests talking, the people yeah. on, on the panel speaking. And I'm used to interviewing guests here on this show, and I just I ask them a question, they give me a thread, and then I can pull on that thread. Mm-hmm. Whereas when there's three other guests on the on the on the panel you can't pull any threads because you you then would just be talking to one person and you're ignoring the other three yeah yeah, yeah. But how did I think you find it, it it was tricky but it went really really well had
1: loads of great feedback afterwards so yeah it was, so really, it was like because I was watching it from the back like doing a film for it and it was really good I think the guests came out of their shell really well as well I think you opened it well and they like seemed to respond to you, and yeah, the questions were good, and it just got some, yeah, some really good answers came out of it as well. So I think we're going to release that as a like a little bonus episode soon, aren't we?
0: Yeah, we got the audio from it, so we'll we'll have a listen back, and if it sounds good, then we'll put it out as like a little bonus episode. Yeah, thanks um, for
1: you guys. Definitely some good value in it for yeah. sure.
0: It was uh, it was mainly uh, music industry people, so uh, there was Stormzy's manager, uh, the manager of the 1975, and uh, two other music industry experts um, on the panel and they gave loads of really interesting insights um, not just about music but just about sort of growing your business in general so yeah could be useful we got a really interesting dm this week from someone was talking about um, diversifying a creative business so so they said that um, they'd looked at and seen how many services we offer uh, which i guess is true so with graffiti life we do team building where we sort of teach people how to paint we do murals inside and outside, advertising stuff. We do live art events. So we've got quite a few different um, services that we offer and they're currently in, in the middle of developing their business and was asking sort of
1: how, how we diversify our services. I think it's an interesting one because when we started, having a range of services really helped when the money was small because we could offer lots of different things to different people and kind of try and fit different needs. And you'd also find that people would come to you wanting one thing and then being like, oh, I didn't realise you did workshops too. And then we could get that job if the mural didn't come off or something like that. But it's a hard one, I think, for someone starting a business because you don't want to spread yourself too thin. I think we had three main services, like murals, live art and workshops. So I think that was quite manageable if we'd have gone too broad. Like I remember at one point on our website, we did have that we did like branding and web design and all these different things that no one ever really asked for. And I think if you say you do too many things, it looks like you'll not really be expert at anything. So I think yeah. just because you can do something, it doesn't mean you should necessarily advertise that you do that. And maybe just build that relationship once you've got the client.
0: Yeah, or start a separate business, I guess, which obviously involves a lot of work. But if there is something that you do that's completely unrelated to the other thing that
1: you do, then it's probably best to not advertise them together in the same space. Yeah, just create two separate brands that hit each one. But then if if you're one person starting something, it might be better to spend your time just concentrating on that first business rather than setting up six different businesses that offer six different things.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because there's always the argument of do one thing really well yeah which I which I really I really do believe in Um, because but then I guess we do
1: graffiti really well but we just do it in a number of different ways yeah but I think all of our three services tie in really closely so because we're experts at painting murals the live art is just doing that in front of people so it's basically the same service just at an event rather than for an office or whatever yeah And then workshops are quite, like, that's a relatively simple addition, like, we know how to do it, we've been doing it for years and years and years, we're experts at it. So to teach that in a quite concise way that people can actually learn from, I think came to us quite well and, like, we've developed that over time. But it's not radically different to what we do anyway, like, at the end of the day we're still spraying a can.
0: Whereas when we were doing like the web design stuff and all of that, we could we definitely could do it, but yeah.
1: it does it didn't really fit with our brand. Yeah, like we we ended up doing a few web design and branding kind of things, but they were very graffiti related. Like people didn't come to us just because we could do it, they saw a graffiti company and they wanted graffiti. They didn't want you to design a website for them because that's not how they found you originally. Yeah, one thing I
0: definitely advocate as well is turning your service into a workshop if there's a way of doing that. So, um, for example, there's there's one of our friends who is basically a tea expert, Darjeeling, Oolong, all, all the all the teas, all the teas all the green leaves. teas, all of those types of teas. And she was starting a business up around tea. She was basically selling lots of different types of tea. And uh, me and Yona actually really helped her to develop a, a kind of a workshop around around tea, doing a tea tasting thing. I was also helping someone um, via DM. Basically, she was setting up a a business that was around helping rape victims. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of advising her as to one thing that she could do. There's a lot of big brands out there and big companies that have budgets for things for their staff to do. And workshops is such a great way to distill down, if your main business is, for, for her, it was talking about talking to rape survivors and, and she has a blog and everything in, in like dealing with and helping people through those things. But then I was sort of helping her to like package that up, turn it into a program where she could go into a business who has huge budgets for their staff £50, pounds, £100 yeah. pounds per head or whatever, uh, whatever it is you charge, you can then charge that to a big company that are crying out for people to come in and help their staff with various things. Yeah. And so she can come in and just do a talk on awareness or um, work with different groups and and just like talk about all the, all the sort of stuff that she does. Exactly the same with tea tasting. You can go in, you can charge, say, £30 pounds a head. Um, and for this, you would put together like the benefits of tea, why tea helps your workforce. What we... What we suggested to um, to Anna, who runs um, Fortune's Exploits, the, the tea company, was that um, do your first one for free, document it with videos and picture, and then put together a PDF. So you've got this workshop, you've done one successful one, you have this workshop, maybe get some testimonials as well if you can. And then you have a product then that you can then send out to 100 other companies and say, just did this workshop for I don't know Pepsi whoever like pick a brand just did this workshop for them you've managed to get if you've got a friend who works somewhere like get them to get you through the door so you can do this thing deliver it completely for free that like you're very likely to get a yes once you've done that you can then package it up and you can then sell that out to loads of other people and I think it's, it's something that a lot of people don't think of doing they have mm. their main service and they don't think I could teach someone you don't have to teach someone to do what you do, but you just have to give them a
1: taste and experience around your expertise. I think not enough people realise how much of an expert they are at a topic as well. Like if you know something well enough that someone will pay you to do it, then you can run a workshop in that, like definitely. 100%. You probably think that
0: you're not qualified, I think, because you're in it all the time. You just think it's obvious. Yeah. So yeah, over the last, I guess, nine years of running a business and producing content, I've started to realise that every single person
1: either wants to be entertained or educated. Yeah, like educated, inspired, entertained or informed are the four pillars that a piece of content should definitely hit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you can do those
0: in in your business in a multitude of different ways, and calling it pillars is absolutely right. Like those pillars supporting your core, your core business of mm. what it is you do. Um, I think that you're that you're definitely onto a, onto a winner. And someone that certainly educates and informs is this week's guest, Rhiannon Lambert. Yes, Rhiannon Lambert is a nutritionist, an author, and an online content creator. Early on, it looked like everything was going one way for Rhiannon. She was set to be a world famous opera star. But she tells us why everything changed around completely and this set her on a path to becoming a nutritionist. We talk about the early days of her setting up her practice, which is now on Harley Street, to working with huge celebrities and harnessing the power of social media to grow her empire. Rhiannon has an incredibly popular podcast, Food for Thought, that we recommend you guys listen to is all about food and nutrition she's interviewed guests like gary barlow and lisa snowden and covers really interesting topics like how food can affect your mood
1: in this episode we talk about eating disorders getting a record deal and teamwork
2: you want to have fun with what you do and i'm such a believer in team playing in the sense that if you support one another you are you're empowering someone else i think the phrase is an empowered person empowers others
0: Hi, Rihanna Lambert.
2: Hello, well, hi guys. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. What I
0: really want to talk about first is that I think we talk a lot on this podcast about people sort of finding their passion, um, finding what they what they really want to do, what they love, and. You are a nutritionist, but that was not how you started out. So what was your, what did you think your career was going to be?
2: Oh, it's, it's a very good question. And it's probably a very, um, unusual answer for a nutritionist. Mm. But I actually started off, um, wanting to be a singer from a very young age. I loved musical theatre. I was a real odd child at school while all the other kids were listening to, I don't know, whatever pop record or boy band was on at the time. I was listening to Phantom of the Opera wow. <laughs> on cassette tapes back then, which kind of gives away how old I am a little bit. But I always had. A voice, And I can't describe it because my family weren't musical, my mom, my dad, I didn't have lessons, none of that. I went to a pretty bog standard secondary mm. state school. And I, to cut a long story short, entered an online competition when I was doing my, um, I think it was GCSEs at the time, going into A-levels. So was, I'd have been turning 17. And it was with Classic FM. And my music teacher at school was like, Re, really, you should enter this, you know, you know, you'd love it. So I kind of mimicked and probably sang very poorly looking back Strauss's laughing song, which is an aria with lots of different arpeggios and things that I just naturally could do. I can't describe it. It was the only thing that I was confident with. Yeah. I didn't have close knit friendship groups at school. I kind of hid behind a boyfriend. I just kept myself to myself and I just loved singing. So I entered and I won. Classic FM's Young Musician of the Year, and before I knew it, this is my story, I was working in subway at the time, part-time after school, and I was a kitchen maid in the local all-girls boarding school, so I was going after school to do their dinners and stuff, and then at the weekends I'd be doing subway shifts or some mornings, and I had to quit all of that. And move up to London because this amazing competition gave me the chance to come and work with, um, record labels up in London. And I thought I'd made it. You know, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the dream come true. I'm moving up to London. And the reality wasn't quite what you're sold. So you've got this amazing high after winning this competition, thinking this is my career made. You know, I'm signed to a big major record label now. However, what I didn't realize was, well, how am I going to pay the rent? You know, I've just been, I moved to Camden which was very different back then. This is the Amy Winehouse days. So it was incredible to be in that kind of vibe in that area at that time. And I remember handing out CVs in Oxford Street for a part-time job, which wouldn't happen now because we've got social media and the internet. And whilst we had internet, then it wasn't quite the same. It was still a face-to-face, hired, lover job here. And I got two offers in Accessorize and Caramillum. Which at the time, for, for a girl, you know, they're pretty good stores. It was a pretty hard decision for me back
0: then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which one do I choose? So I went with um and started working. And actually, this is when 2008 came around, the economy crashed, and the record labels were going bust. EMI was taken over at the time, and Universal Classics and Jazz things were shifting. And I'd always been pitched as the next kind of Catherine Jenkins kind of style, but it it wasn't popular anymore. Times had changed so much within the year that I'd been signed that suddenly they were thinking, what are we going to do with this girl? You know, we've got on our label. I was doing some incredible work with people that work with Brian May and some amazing names. I mean, songwriting was so much fun, but I got dropped by the label. And then I got picked up by another concept by Warner Brothers, worked on that for another six or seven months, then got dropped again, then worked on something else. And it was this vicious cycle. And throughout that, I definitely was miserable. I wasn't eating well. I um put a lot of pressure on myself to look a certain way because, to be honest, that's the environment I was in. Mm. It wasn't about your talent as much as it's how you look to sell what you're doing, which is awful looking back. So I left off diet products, and before I knew it... I mean, I don't think I was aware of it at the time, but I definitely developed disordered eating. And I went to a doctor, and instead of trying to help me, and I discussed this in my TEDx talk a lot as well, he gave me antidepressants. And I was so young to be taking stuff like that. Obviously, yeah. I how old nothing. were you
1: at this point?
2: At that point, I'd have been just turning 19, I think, when I was on the antidepressants. So, really young yeah. for someone to be taking medication when they're not actually depressed. It was because I was probably underweight and malnourished. And I'd, I just got to kind of a saturation point where all my friends were at university or college or having fun, you know, going out drinking. I mean, this is quite embarrassing, but I did my first shot when I was 21. Yeah. <laughs> I missed. I <laughs> know, your face is right now. If you could see this thing. It's quite a picture. Um, But it's because I was so focused on the singing and mm. this career and I had so many part-time jobs at this point in time. And the only other thing I really had an interest in, ironically, was food. I love music and I love food. And I enrolled in university as a mature student, by this point moved forward to 21, going back to uni. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in nutrition. I graduated with a first class nutrition degree. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> i, I got to admit, being the underdog makes you work 10 times harder. I did not care about science at school. I hated with a passion chemistry and things like that. But when you really want to do something, I think going back a bit later to uni was good for me, because I was really interested. So I actually found it fascinating. And cut a long story short, I was a singer. And then I became a nutritionist. And I went on to do my master's and numerous other things that I'm now still currently studying. It never ends. And that's how I am kind of where I am now.
0: So there's so much to unpack there. And um, being yeah. dropped by the labels mm. for your mental health, I would imagine there's no sort of support there. It's literally mm. just you get a letter one day that says we are severing ties with you.
2: wasn't even a letter. I mean, what was worse was that you would be kept in limbo land waiting, just waiting for your it's demos. To, yeah, you you hear nothing. You, you're literally thinking, all right, so I'm just doing my part-time job, you know, or several at that point in time. I was stewarding at the Royal Albert Hall as well because i wanted to be involved with the music you know showing people to their seats and yeah you just you hear nothing and because you don't have any control over your life i can definitely see that's how my poor mental health was affected at that point in time i didn't really i well i don't I have the biggest family support network so i was kind of isolated and i even ended up this is something i don't actually talk about a lot um in a very very negative relationship at the time a very destructive one and it's very easy when you're vulnerable to end up in these different situations at that point in time.
0: Yeah, it must have been. It must have been super hard because um, I think when we think of people with a record deal, we don't picture them working a part-time job.
2: No, of course or not. Or several
0: part-time jobs. Yeah, how right? do you
2: pay the bills? The
0: illusion is like I'm now famous. Mm. That means I live in a mansion. Yeah. It's just yeah, just not like that. Especially in 2008 when streaming is coming in and things are just changing. The whole landscape is changing. So. So then moving um into university, I think what I love about you is the fact that you're a learner. And um I mean, I've heard you tell the story of of calling your dad the first day of yeah. of uni and and uh, having a cry. What were you crying about?
2: I, I I nearly quit, honestly, the first week in. I think because I was on a course that was so science-based and it's somewhere I never thought I'd end up. I don't think I actually realised when I applied for the university role how science-based it was. I just thought food, nutrition, great. Um, I didn't think about biochemistry or pathophysiology and all the things I'd have to learn. And I remember just telling him, thinking, Dad, I'm a musician. I can't do this. And I was still singing at the time when I was at uni too. So I joined a girl group and I was actually traveling the world at this point doing amazing one-off gigs still and still kind of holding on to that dream a little bit whilst I was at university. So I very nearly quit. Um, So were you still
1: signed to a label at this point?
2: This was a private um, kind of indie record label. And I was in a girl group, which actually I still sing with now, called Passionata. And we had some incredible gigs. And we went to Singapore, um, Oman, Portugal. I can't even, San Maritz. You know, there was some amazing, but it was always for 24 hours. So you'd be flying like 14 hours. You'd land, go to the hotel. Your voice is knackered, especially as a soprano. You do the gig and you fly home. But it all seemed a bit you know, fun and exciting, but now I can't think of anything worse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is the soprano, is that the high one or the low one? The
2: high one. The high one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: I know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you got it
2: right, the high clearly, one. <laughs> yeah.
0: Clearly, um, evidence there. Um, that's that's amazing. And you still sing with those guys now?
2: Yeah, um, we've got a gig coming up next month, actually. And we've, I mean, we've been so lucky. We did the Twickenham World Cup as well. Um, we did the anthem. That was about seven or eight years ago now. Can't remember which yeah. date or what year that was, um, but we've had the most incredible opportunities um, and quite amazing corporate work, which has been great fun. It's yeah. amazing.
0: Was it with them that you did the Royal Swedish family? Yeah. yeah. So
2: that was the wedding on the top of the mountain in San Maritz. I have never seen. I and mean, obviously, as a student at the time, you're a penniless student, and you're doing these gigs here and there for yeah. a couple of whatever hundred pounds, which was incredible for me back then. It was amazing, and. It was at the top of a mountain, we were all wearing capes, so they made us wear these kind of snow capes, and the scenery was so still and beautiful, and we were kind of singing in harmony, things like All You Need Is Love from the Beatles, and um, yeah, I can't even get over it, I can't even describe how beautiful it was and how surreal it is to be at the top of a mountain on a church in the middle of nowhere
1: Yeah
2: watching this scene unfold in front of you and then the after party that we were singing at the evening that was something else
0: yeah I think that's so cool of, of like when you when you do something that you love and then it takes you other places it's kind of we obviously we need the money to survive yeah but those moments are what Kind of makes it all worthwhile. Yeah,
1: the experiences that you remember forever.
0: Forever, yeah, because you won't remember the however many hundred quid it was that got deposited in your bank account. You'll remember standing on a on a mountain and looking out at the scenery.
2: Oh, I remember those moments so well. It's just such a shame at the time I wasn't healthy, you know. Because I Mm. think if I looked back, I would have got even more out of it if I was nourishing myself correctly. But of course, back then I really wasn't. Still, so. Yeah, the memories are the things that last forever, definitely. So
0: you obviously weren't trying to not nourish yourself properly. You thought you were doing the right thing. And so I'm guessing that that means that we are vastly undereducated in this country about how to eat correctly.
2: Hugely. I mean, I think there's been a big shift thankfully in the last 10 years that people care a lot more now i mean the job Mm. i currently have as a registered nutritionist is people look at it and like oh that's quite cool whereas back then they were like what on earth why are you studying that who cares but i got all my information from certain magazines i believe that 10 calorie jellies or um uh the brand that everyone will know the ww kind of yogurts and low-fat products were the answer to health Yeah, I probably wasn't getting any vegetables, really. And when I think back, I was just living off diet products in bottles and wafer biscuits. (laughs) I really had no clue, no clue at all. In fact, the university degree completely, completely changed my life, kind of opened my eyes to this whole new world where I was like, wow, the food I've always loved that I kind of grew up on, the really healthy kind of hearty meals, even a spag bol is 10 times better than this wafer with low-calorie marshmallow in the middle,
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think hearing your story of uh, let's let's just call it what it is, like e- an eating disorder, mm. really kind of changed my views of what that of what that looks like. Because you were obviously like fully functioning, mm. and everyone's like, "Oh, there's Rhiannon," yeah. and no one knew that there was a problem. But inside your crying it's the only analogy that i could kind of think of but like inside you're you're going to pieces because you're not you're not fueling your body in the correct Mm -hmm. way even though you think that you are yeah um and then you mentioned that you were prescribed um antidepressants as just this like kind of quick easy like i mean how long were you talking to the doctor for
2: Oh, well, I probably had about a 15 minute, 10 to 15 minute consultation. And that was enough for them to to say, try these pills. They don't really know what to do with you. And like you said, it's it's a mental health illness. So you can't see it. And it's something that back then, even more than now, wasn't spoken about. No one did. You You were literally suffering in silence. I was extremely miserable looking back. And it reflected in my songwriting at the time as well. All my songs were based on kind of Evanescence-esque minor key. Um I used to love things like even Cirque du Soleil soundtracks. If anyone's listened to those, some of them are quite epic and deep. Mm. And I loved all that style. I loved those genres. The world
0: does love sad songs though, doesn't yeah. it? So yeah. maybe, <laughs> you love a ballad. Yeah. So maybe completely punishing yourself, something yeah. good did come from it. You know, true,
2: true. I got some amazing work um, out of it, out of the songs, but the label did keep telling me and when I was working with different people, we need something a bit more upbeat, re. There's a bit more upbeat, I just couldn't do it. <laughs>
0: If you're not in that place, then then that's, yeah, that's not what you can't, you can't just fake your art, can you? And just like, oh, I'll make a happy song because that's what you want. It's like, you can only create what you're feeling.
2: Yeah, no, really true. Unless you are an extremely gifted songwriter. Songwriting definitely wasn't my forte. I'm much more of a performer, but co-writing with other people really highlighted, wow, it's such a skill and talent to be a songwriter. It's really tough.
0: So what did make you um, decide nutrition?
2: I think ultimately, it was when I got, I would say, halfway into the first year of the degree. And I was like, this is it for me. I, I, it's just something clicked in my head. I loved and thrived off learning. I missed it so much. I had years out of learning and pushing my brain and testing myself. And I was fascinated. And I wanted to help the people around me as well. And my father's very overweight and... um He's got lots of different health conditions. Everyone in that side of the family's died from heart disease quite young. So when you you grow up in an environment as well, you think this could be changing people's lives. And it hit me because I thought, oh, well, if I was doing this, I wouldn't have needed that medication at that point in time. And how many people in the world are actually doing that right now? It's incredible. Food really does change how you feel mentally, just as much as how you look or feel this physically as well.
0: So that kicks in halfway through the course. But what, mm. what put you onto the course in the first place?
2: I was searching. I'm trying to think of what the moment was. It was definitely after a gig I'd done. I remember going on the internet and thinking, I just want to go to uni. Yeah. And I was trying to think, what do I love? What do I love? And it was, it's just that I loved food, which is such a weird place to be yeah. in when you're actually not eating well in the first place. But that's very common with people with um, eating disorders or forms of disordered eating. So all they do is think about food. So actually looking back, that could also have been an element towards the decision I made. So it turned out for the best for me, but for some people, that decision could be detrimental because it it could become an obsession, you know, a really unhealthy obsession. So you've really I'm always very wary now in my position that I'm in now when people contact me saying, Oh, I'm recovering from an eating disorder, I want to go and study nutrition. I'm thinking, is that gonna help you? Is it going to make it worse? It's really um for me, it saved me, but it may not be the same for everyone.
0: I like how seriously you take that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that's kind of present through all of your content is mm-hmm. knowing that people do want, they have all of these questions and they want the answers to them. A lot of times they just want the magic quick fix, which obviously doesn't exist no. in anything. Um, but they, they're looking to you as, as the expert. And I think there's a lot of people online who don't take that responsibility seriously.
2: Yeah, I actually wrote a feature in The Telegraph yesterday about this because another problem has come up again with lots of people following online influencers for nutrition advice and it's mm-hmm. extremely worrying. I mean, the amount of people I end up replying to Instagram DMs or Twitter or every platform, you name it, just saying they want someone to tell them it's okay or I can do this. But Mm -hmm. even worse is when I get moms messaging me saying, you know, my baby's feeling this X, Y, Z. What should I give them for this? What foods can I have? And I'm thinking, how can I possibly know? I spend an hour with my clients in clinic. I go through their digestion, their immunity, their family history. I go through their lifestyle. It's so unethical. But unless you've had that training... I think people in a position of influence may be thinking they are helping by giving people saying, oh, well, this is what I do. I just eat fruit every meal of the day. So um, there are people that do that. Um, You should (laughs) do that too. And it's really worrying because they don't know anything about this person that's messaging them, but they think they're helping. So it comes from a place of naivety, I think, or uneducated, basically.
0: Because you don't have to have a degree to call yourself a nutritionist no. online. Um, yeah. So I guess it's the message is check who you are taking your advice from and are they qualified to give you that advice? And you're certainly qualified. In fact, I love the fact that you went and studied psychology. I did. Rolling off of after your after my
2: master's degree, I went back again to. I now I'm now a master practitioner in psychological interventions to disordered eating and it's an obesity it's really important because i found that i had all the science in the world you know my three-year degree my year masters and furthering diplomas but it wasn't enough because how can someone implement behavior change if you can't get the right questions for them or get Mm. the answers back and digest that information and think how can i probe this person or what's going to work for them psychology is everything absolutely everything both of you sat in front of me now will have things you like because of what you had in childhood or it's habitual or what you believe food does for you or you may believe that x food always makes you feel good so you're going to eat that every morning so everyone's got something psychological when it comes to food
1: regarding habits Mm. how would you kind of say to someone to grow a good habit
2: it depends again. I'm going to play devil's advocate and say yeah. what is good to them mm-hmm. because everyone's, if it comes to nutrition, if we're isolating this in a nutritional sense, mm-hmm. someone's version of eating well could be, I'm just going to have one portion of broccoli this week because I never normally eat any greens. Another's could be, I want to try and get my five a day. Another could be, I'm at 10 a day already, so I need to change something else. I think it's being realistic, first of all. Um I actually go by a traditional kind of method, which is definitely looking at the situation, the task at hand, analyzing it, and then how realistic is that goal, which is called the STAR method, Mm -hmm. um, which we all use in science and literature a lot of the time. So just remember STAR for anyone out there listening when you set little goals to yourself. Because if I'm going to say to you, Adam, let's say, I want you to be eating 10 a day for a month. Yeah. Yeah. Is that possible if you're traveling with work to, I don't know, somewhere very remote in Africa where there's yeah. no way you're going to get your 10 a day or your budget may be different. Mm-hmm. So we work within goals and we set little achievable goals. Could be more sleep at night because if you get more sleep, you're less likely to be craving certain things the next day. You're more likely to make better decisions. It could be that your stress level's high. So actually by not going to do that HIT class in the morning and just stretching at home and meditating or something that could then have a knock-on effect on the choices you make that day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's This is why it becomes a bit more complex than just telling someone what to eat when you're a nutritionist because everyone is so unique. Yeah, I never know what case is going to be sat in front of me. And you have to dissect that information and set something attainable.
0: Yeah, there's no one-size-fits-all mm. um, solution, is there? Um, which I guess makes your job a bit of a a bit of a minefield yeah Um, which is why
2: you need to be qualified I might just add
0: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. because that's the thing it's like you go to a GP with these problems that's typically like the what most of us would do because that's the the standard narrative of oh Mm -hmm. I'm not feeling great so I go and see and I think don't they get like one day of training on nutrition
2: less it's like um it could be less than six hours in the entire medical degree Whoa.
0: And I mean, I feel like, like it should four, be five, Six months at least Because really most of our Ailments, aren't they Mostly based through what we're putting in our body
2: In today's day and age What we call metabolic diseases Which um, are things like diabetes Cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. those sorts of things Being overweight predisposes you to Just as much as modern conditions that we've seen Rising, neurodegenerative diseases Things like Alzheimer's, motor neuron. Um, yeah yeah. I heard
0: that um, Alzheimer's is being called like diabetes type 3 I don't know if you know a guy called Max Lovergrave
2: I've heard of yes Um,
0: I've been enjoying some of his content Mm. recently really Mm. interesting and him talking about I mean mostly about bread um, (laughs) and bread bringing on Alzheimer's and um, Mm.
2: I would take that with a pinch of salt I think it's an overall diet more than one item Mm -hmm. and lifestyle I mean for some people they, they can eat Bread and live a very happy long life. Look at the Mediterranean diet, for instance. Yeah. Uh, it depends and you're on the type an
0: advocate of, of the Mediterranean diet, right?
2: Well, if it, I'm an advocate of many different dietary or lifestyle okay. choices. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll never be someone that will. It's just too complex. Mm-hmm. Although the Mediterranean diet, diet is the most researched for cardiovascular disease. So we know that people have healthier hearts and live longer. Alongside the Asian diet. So we're looking at Japanese diets. They're another nation that lived for a very long time. So we tend to base a lot of scientific research on those two kind of genres. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the Western world, we know we're overeating on highly processed foods. Bread probably falls into that category for a lot of people a slice of bread's fine, but if you have like it at every meal, then it's not okay. Yeah. What are you having with it? Is there a lack of fiber? I mean, fiber's then linked to your gut health, and your gut health is now linked to everything else with the gut-brain axes. And then we've got things like oily fish, omega-3s, which reduces risk of neurodegenerative diseases. What's
0: the gut-brain axis?
2: So gut-brain axis is how your gut talks to your brain. So when you're hungry, this is a classic example, it's not your brain telling your stomach, oh, I need food now. It's your stomach telling your brain. There's like a little feedback loop. You can imagine a little circle going from your um, gut all the way up to your brain but also we now know that the bacterium so we've got about two kilos of living bacteria inside our gut that is a lot of Mm. kind of stuff that's making a noise that's interacting we know that bacteria eats a tenth of what we eat today so imagine if you have 10 meals a day let's say you did no one would but if you did i don't know (laughs) i take that back actually you never know but one of those meals would be feeding bacteria not even you So the balance of good to bad bacteria ratio depends on the type of food you feed that bacteria. And if you feed it the right things, the signals that that bacteria will interact with, we know that it's now linked to depression. We know it's linked to weight maintenance. We're investigating if it's linked to different chronic illnesses. So we know now that it's all unique as well. I mean, my favorite saying is, you are as unique as your personality is because you cannot say to one single person, you've got X, Y, and Z bacterium. We will never know the full extent yet.
0: So I'm literally using this podcast now just for my <laughs> selfish <laughs> needs of like just there's so many things I want to ask you. Yeah. So um, I've heard about there being um, like your gut being as powerful as your brain or like as powerful as a cat brain.
2: Is a that cat brain. Yeah.
0: Ooh. Apparently there's as many neurons in your gut as there is um, in a cat's brain.
2: So I think I see where that analogy has been drawn from. Um, It's also linked to your immune system as well.
0: I apologise. I (laughs) (laughs) I, I am an idiot, just to clarify.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, cat brain aside, we know that 90% of serotonin, which is happy hormone, is produced in the gut. We know that 70% of your immune system sits in the gut. Neurons are things that we find in the brain often, and they're the things that send little signals and messages. And even when I'm talking about this with you, it brings me back to the discussion we had earlier that if I'd never gone and done a three-year degree at university covering immunology and studying with the other neuroscientists on my course, I wouldn't understand any of this. Mm -hmm. Online courses just don't cut it for nutrition. But Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on in the gut, a lot of different interactions, and we still don't have the full answer. I should be very, um, open about that, that we're still researching it. In America, they're doing, um, fecal kind of transplants, which is fascinating. It's not nice to think about, but you know, could be a really good area of research we can delve into probiotics and prebiotic foods are a lot of talk at the moment about gut-friendly foods, people drinking more kombuchas, kefir, sauerkraut. But then again, we've had that for thousands of years, We just didn't actually know. And you know when you get that feeling when you're nervous or when you're stressed, that tends to be where more IBS-related symptoms come on for a lot of people. It's because blood flow is drawn away from your stomach when you're stressed. We've got a vagus nerve, which is almost like if you hold a tape measure from your head to your toes, imagine a long thin line going through your body. Mm -hmm. And that nerve is very sensitive to everything. So when you get that gut feeling, that is your vagus nerve just shifting blood flow. It's fascinating. I'm ge- I'm geeking out on you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I love
1: it. <laughs> so interesting.
0: <laughs> Cat brain aside, mm-hmm. you, um, you graduate with your now two masters. Yes. Um, and then how do you get yourself into Harley Street? Because I think just by being Harley Street, it kind of has its own sort of social proof in that... If I'm a client, I probably wouldn't like research that much into you because I'd be like, well, you're on Harley Street, Mm. so you must be legit Mm. kind of thing. So that's obviously a a great place for you to to have your practice. How did that opportunity come about? Well,
2: I should add, it's a great place to have a practice. However, anyone that can afford Harley Street can put themselves on Harley Street. So still do your research if you're listening. I mean, yes, a lot of us credible health professionals are there. But you can get those ones that will just take your money that don't have the full qualifications. Cause they can afford the room higher.
0: Well, it's the same, and this is a, a funny comparison, but it's the same with tattoo studios. Oh, really? So you don't have to have any sort of um, artistic talent to open a, a tattoo studio. That's terrifying. You just have to be clean. That's literally it. So that's, what, that's one thing that we always say to people because um, one of our businesses is yeah, a tattoo know, studio. Yeah, I know, yeah. And one of the things we always say to people is do your research and look at the artists and look at their, their body of work mm because you, you never know who you're getting. If they've got a clean studio, they could absolutely butcher you.
2: Well, you see it on a night out, don't you? Sometimes? <laughs> yeah. you, see, you see those, I saw one actually last week on someone's foot. I think it said um, something like, I am miserable here on her foot. And I was like, gosh, that was a drunken mistake. I mean, who would actually do that yeah. to someone? So yeah, any, anyway, <laughs> so, um, I think, uh, Say so coming back to Harley Street, when I was in my second year in my undergrad degree, I took a job role um as an intern at the food doctor clinic on Harley street on the reception desk. And I remember it was 20 pound a day and I would go in and I'd, this was on the one day I didn't have lectures in the week and I would just, you know, become familiar mm. and learn about the marketing side of the business, help packing big crates of things and product stocking and just basically Excel spreadsheets, just doing all the really boring admin stuff on the desk that you do. But the clinic was there as well. And it it was a very successful clinic back then. I don't think it's around anymore. But from having that job role, I kept that internship up for a long time, I think about two or three years. But even to get that job I had to call Alice McIntosh, who was the lady at the time, like six or seven times. I bugged her with constant emails. I drove her crazy. She's like, oh, she just kept emailing. So I'm just going <laughs> to give her, you know, give her the role. Yeah. So I was very persistent. I think that goes back to my music industry days. I'm, I'm not scared of a bit of hard work or graft, you know. Mm-hmm. So I put myself out there, got the role. And then when I graduated the end of my first degree... I remember telling Michael, the boss, I was like, Michael, I'm a nutritionist now. Can I be one of your people in clinic, please? He's like, yeah, we love you here. Why not? I was like, great. Before I knew it, I had my first role in Harley Street. However, did you have in
0: your head when you first applied to just be an intern, did you have it in your head that this might be somewhere that I might end up later on?
2: Not initially, But it became very apparent to me that it's really difficult as a nutritionist getting a job. I mean, the NHS doesn't really have the capacity unless you're a dietitian in a clinical-based environment in a hospital. It doesn't really support registered nutritionists. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking at some point a few months in, what am I gonna do? But I actually loved watching the one-to-ones. I never got to sit in on them, but I could see the clients going in the room and then coming out and how they'd react afterwards or I'd hear the conversations. God, I sound like a nosy receptionist <laughs> <laughs> listening and eavesdropping, but I guess I did a lot of eavesdropping. You can kind of just about make out phrases. And yeah, I got I got the job and it was it took a long time building up a client base. I'd get one or two through the company website, but it really came down to me to bring in clients mm-hmm. and that's the hard thing no one tells you. And I didn't dream I'd ever make a living of clinic. I thought this is impossible. I'll get one client maybe every two weeks. I didn't ever think I would have a fully packed clinic like I do now.
0: So what was your plan?
2: I don't really think I had a plan, if I'm being honest. I've never been a um, typical, what's your five-year plan type of girl. Mm -hmm. Still not, if I'm being honest. I tend to keep up with keeping out fires or is that the expression putting out fires constantly
0: spinning plates yeah spinning
2: plates because i was still singing of course i hadn't quite given up still i was still doing the part-time singing um and at that point as well i then started networking so this is when everything started to happen it was just twitter then we didn't i didn't have instagram yeah and i got my first job in a cafe in parsons green uh, a fitness studio brand new and i got the job to set up the entire cafe um and become the nutritionist there and create the energy balls and
0: so you just saw kind of um an opening on, on Twitter someone was
2: Well this is the networking about- thing. So I used to go to a yoga studio in Parsons Green and I'm just so I like chatting to people, you mm. know. I really love the atmosphere of like a friendly friendly environment. I really cherish my friends, I think because I don't have the family network. My friends are like everything to me. Yeah. And I made friends with a girl there and she knew the lady setting up the studio. So she put me in touch. And then before you knew it I had an interview and I got the job. That was tough. I mean, I was having to do the spreadsheets of profit versus, um, you know, turnover and expenses out. So, how much does it cost to make this juice versus to sell it? What the markup should be? I had to keep a track on the tills. I'm terrible at maths. It was really hard. And I was doing that alongside having the food doctor, alongside still working at the Royal Albert Hall. I'd moved to the box office at this point in the call center. So Royal Albert Hall box office, how can I help? (laughs) I've got it in my head, I know the numbers, I can remember the switchboard because I did 10 years there at the Royal Albert Hall. And and actually, I only quit the Royal Albert Hall when I got my book deal. So I did it for a very, very long time just because I loved it, they're like Mm. a family. Um, What was your
0: book deal, like 2016?
2: um, Book deal, I had 7,000 followers on Instagram. It was back in 2006. 17 i think
0: that's really interesting only like seven thousand followers but they they took a took a punt on you yeah was that because you just relentlessly hounded them until they said yes well
2: i never went looking for it this is the interesting thing i was just writing i mean i was on twitter whenever a journalist would come up the big moment was imogen at the sun at the time and i remember seeing a feature on twitter comparing an avocado to a mars bar and i replied being like this is so wrong how can you even do this and she just sent me a private message on twitter saying would you like to comment in the article i was like yes please Great. I'll put the record straight. Yeah, And I made friends. I'm still friends of Imogen now. And I started to get all this traction in the press. And I would just be the person they go to, to comment in all these various features, Daily Mail, The Sun, Independent. And I think my publishers saw it. This is the time when Deliciously Ella was just doing her first book. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she was on her second then. I don't know. Ella's done so well, so many books. And they booked into my clinic. To see me for an appointment. And at this point, I'd moved up the road in Harley Street because I was offered a nutritionist role in a GP clinic as well. So I was just assisting the cardiologist there and anyone that had diabetes or just having an overall look at diets. And I remember thinking, this is so weird. Why are there two ladies here for the session? Normally I get one coming by themselves. Maybe she needs moral support. And she put these books out in front of me and said, We'd love you to write a book. That's how it happened. I had no, honestly, I had no plan. I didn't think I'd ever write a book didn't really enjoy my dissertation much at uni, the writing, you know, I just <laughs> writing wasn't my strong point, but I was offered a book deal and I had no plan. And actually it was the best thing not having a plan because I took a year and re-nourish became my complete philosophy around food. Everything in it is exactly what I believe around walking people through a session with me in clinic, so, we're teaching them the basics. I even have a whole section on body image, self esteem, what's your relationship with food like, how to look at a food diary, and then lots of 70 recipes in the back, delicious recipes. How's
1: it go from someone saying, write a book, to actually for someone who didn't enjoy writing? I know. <laughs> Like the book, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I like. think this was—it was hard at first, but because I was so passionate about it. Whereas your dissertation, you kind of get an idea, you do it. You know, for for a nutrition student, it's very sciencey because you have to do lab work or collating data. Didn't have to do any of that for renourish. It was more about my philosophy and yeah. helping people, which is what I'd done for a few years in clinics. So it was just kind of natural to me, and I got a bug for it, and I really enjoyed the whole process. It, i still can't quite believe it, but then I had to get a literary agent because I didn't have one in the first place to represent me, which is what most people do. They get mm-hmm. a literary agent, they have a book proposal, they take it to the publishers. <laughs> Mine was so backward yeah. and i had no no one really advising me um but it all panned out for the best, really.
0: You obviously mentioned that you thought you were going to get like one client a week yes. um and social media has been massive for you Mm. Um, and you've obviously got a huge audience now Mm. what have been your your kind of strategies if you have any because I know you don't make plans but what have been your strategies (laughs) to kind of to building that audience um coming from because obviously appearances becoming like known as an expert Mm. which I guess you've done by just positioning yourself as an expert and just saying I am an expert and commenting on articles Mm. and networking with journalists and people like that so that you're the go-to girl aside from being the expert um which obviously takes time and well i
2: wouldn't even consider myself an expert cuz I, I still feel like there's so much to learn but an authoritative voice i would say mm, yeah, yeah definitely um how does that happen would be the question um well a lot of studying a lot of grafting a lot of qualifications to back you up first of all is essential And it is really just making sure that you are the yes person for a very long time. You know, I I didn't expect payment. I would do everything for free for lots, lots and lots for free for Mm. years. And when it comes to growing a social media following, I would collaborate a lot at the beginning and team up with other people in the industry. I had no interest in Instagram. I have to be honest. I was on it because my clients were like, I just want to show you what I'm doing and you can keep an eye on me. I was like, great. Yeah. You can put your food up and I'll be like, yeah, well done. Or it was quite sweet. It was quite yeah, nice. was quite
0: interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Keeping tabs on each other. It like really a diary. worked. Like, it yeah. was great
2: for some clients, not for all of them, but, and being in the cafe at the time, at the beginning, I just take pictures of what I created in the cafe, you know, people would comment and it was quite fun, but when it started to grow quite rapidly, that would be because of the features in the press and the events and the collaborations. And I'm quite ambitious and I really, really enjoy public speaking. And that's what helped, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Not being scared to get up and share your views and take questions. I don't mind a and a whereas I know a lot of people are like, I need to see the questions in advance. You know, I want to know what's being thrown at me.
0: I love a Q and A. Yeah, I think Q and As are the best because yeah. then yeah. you you can directly help people. Yeah, because if you're if you want to do public speaking, it's like why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Like if you're just standing up to tell everyone how great you are, then
1: yeah, I think if there's that ego <laughs> side of it, yeah. then it's just you're just showing off to the room. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing Q Q and A, you're directly helping people within that audience, yeah. like specifically 100%. to them as well. Also, I think if you do Q and A, it shows that you know it a lot better because yeah. I could. Learn, learn enough to do a talk on nutrition. Yeah, with no knowledge, yeah. just kind of don't like. Wait for, for the like question. <laughs> <just Yeah>. <laughs> and I'd be like, Ugh. but well, like it's being yeah.
2: honest as well and saying, well, if I don't know the answer, I'm totally okay with that. There's mm-hmm. so much to learn. It's evolving every year. Science changes, so. I don't think I'm the best person to answer that, but I'll go and look it up or I know this person that yeah. could be useful. So I've got a huge referral network. Mm-hmm. I work with psychiatrists, different doctors, gynecologists, dermatologists. I've got a bank of professionals that I've built over the years mm-hmm. that I constantly refer to all the time. It's just good to have a bit of a support network, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I think it's something that people neglect. And especially with all this talk of like entrepreneurship and everything like that, there's no way we would build what we have built without our team behind us and, Mm -hmm. and amazing people and collaborations. And it's it's so powerful, but it's under undervalued, I think.
2: Oh, completely. And you want to have fun with what you do. And I'm such a believer in team playing in the sense that if you support one another, you are, you're empowering someone else. I think the phrase is an empowered person empowers others. Mm. And it's really true. You don't get somewhere overnight. It takes graft. It takes time. But also, it makes your life more enjoyable and you're giving something back to someone else. And I'm a big believer in karma. You know, I just think the more you can help the more enjoyable your life will be and the person you're helping. So it's the wellness industry that I'm in is very nice. I'm very lucky. You know, we're, we're basically all there because we like helping people, which yeah. is cheesy as it sounds. I love my clinic and I love being able to, you know, getting these lovely messages from my clients. Oh, I've managed, I've had my baby or, you know, I've managed to maintain this weight that I wanted to maintain or reverse my type 2 diabetes. It's an incredible feeling. So like you said, supporting and what you guys have built is, out of this world it's incredible it's so inspirational but i know that that doesn't come from nothing it takes 24 7 hours there's no day off being self-employed
1: so for someone who is currently on their own looking to go into something how would you develop that support network for someone who has no one currently
2: well, I've been there. I know the feeling. Um I would sign up to, so what I did was sign up to newsletters from various societies. So uh, for me, it was the Nutrition Society or um I would sign up to brands like the Food Doctor or and Nut and things and see what's going on, what events they have. And you, you've got to kind of put on, I'd be petrified. I know it sounds strange, but I think I'm an introvert that has to play an extrovert, which yeah, is an interesting that's thing. That's
1: both of us too.
2: Yeah. You know how to switch it on when you need it, but I love nothing more than being inside my house in the evening, not partying and just watching a good film. The for to making small talk sometimes is, is really not for me, but you have to do it. So you put on a smile, you go out, you network, and you'll find you actually enjoy it when you put yourself in that position. You'll make contacts honestly, you never, ever know. It never hurts to be nice. It never hurts to go and try something new. That's how you'll start building networks, like-minded people going into similar kind of event spaces. Social media now, if I'd had it when I started out with how it is now, I think it may have been a bit easier, to be honest. You can connect with anyone. You could drop them a DM and say, hey, want to go to this brunch event? Or, And I'm sure people would be like, yeah. It's very open. You can, you can, The reason I managed to get some of my VIP clients is through Twitter, famously Fabregas the footballer, is through Twitter. Yeah.
0: So you reached out to him?
2: No, his girlfriend or now wife, Daniela. I love Daniela. She's so, so adorable. Um, she put on that her family needed help with a nutritionist. My fiance is a big Arsenal fan. So of course followed Sesk. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Okay. So Arsenal gooners or whatever they're called in the room, <laughs> but Arsenal. And then he played for Chelsea. Yeah. So he was following and said, Oh, look, you should just reply. So I did. And then she DM me. Followed Incredible. and DM. I know it took a very long time to build a trust. Of course, we'd only converse over Twitter, no phone numbers, no emails. Um, eventually I went to the house and I, saw the family for about four years and they only moved to Monaco this year and I'm still in touch. And it's been a really lovely, I've seen, you know, children be born over the years. They've got like five now. It's amazing. You never know. Just reach out like the journal requests, reach out to people. It's, it's
0: amazing, isn't it? Cause when I, I think back to, there's a lot of, a lot of people will ask us about specific things that we've done um, where it's been sort of a big event and it's been successful or whatever. And it's like, how, or how did you do that and you can't take it without the the nine years building up to yeah. it yeah yeah it's like you you replying on twitter you're not going to be taken seriously unless you've got everything you had up until that point yeah. to so it's 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 starting these journeys where you can and just building
1: up step by step it's such a gradual process that that you never really finish yeah. it's like mm. we ha- I had a meeting the other day where someone wanted to know how to launch a podcast mm. and i was like Phew. It's not just getting a few microphones together, Mm-mm. learning a bit of audio software and pressing record. It's the, like, the months and months oh, worth of networking before that, guests. getting the guests, like, finding people you don't know, finding people who might be interested, like, it's there's so much involved but it's that consistent yeah it's
2: grafting and i'm actually and i spoke about it with gary barlow on my last podcast episode yeah and he said that it's very frustrating even for someone like him judging x factor because he's like people expect overnight fame when he put in years and years and years of gigging and self you know promotion and work graft Nothing comes overnight. People would probably look at my social media page and think, "Oh, she's got it all. It looks her life looks perfect. She's probably so privileged." Blah blah. blah. You know what I mean? People just don't know yeah. what you put in to get to where you are. It doesn't just happen.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. that's. Uh, I mean, I think that's why, like, on your vlog, how you're like really honest, and you're like, "Now I've got to go and do two hours of emails at t- at ten p.m." <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, people don't see that yeah. that side. Um, mm. and well, it it's isn't. normal
2: to us now, I suppose, yeah. but it, I guess to a lot of people, they just clock off at work and go home.
0: Mm. Yeah, they can I can watch TV. Yeah, because uh, cause again, this this show is the current theme of everything is just about finding your happiness and find. Mm. And I think a lot of people hate their nine to five. Mm. So if doing something on your own terms will make you more happy, then do it. However, be prepared to be working 24 seven. Like yeah. if when you work for yourself, it there, is, there isn't like you're working more than a nine to five. So it's like, I think people want to do get all the rewards without doing any of the work and it's like you have to be in love with the with the process it's like it's clear that you love what you do yeah
2: but I get days where I'm in tears I mean yeah it's not um it's not for everyone the self-employed life yeah you've I think I had so many knocks when I was in the music industry my resilience is just quite tough now you know throw it at me I'll deal with it I'll be really devastated but I'll pick myself up again you have a sink or swim and that is a self-employed life I think
1: What do you do to get, pick yourself back up?
2: It's been really hard sometimes. Sometimes you literally think your whole career is over in a day because something could have happened and you really think you've blown it. (laughs) Just Mm. things happen, financial woes, all that kind of stress. It's having my friends and my fiance. I'm, like I said, the introverted extrovert because without my group of people that I just want to turn my phone off and go for dinner with or switch off. Sometimes I'll book a cinema in the middle of the day. I know it sounds really weird. can't believe I'm sharing this, but sometimes (laughs) I will go by myself and sit in a two hour film if I have to do something because I can't look at my phone and it just makes me watch something. Because reading a book, unfortunately, unless I'm on holiday, doesn't do the trick for me anymore. Mm -hmm. Meditating, I have to be at one of my thoughts, not always the best thing for me. So yeah, you've got to find a way of switching off. And then before you know it, everything's always better when you wake up the next day. It's not so bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it yeah, it always is. And uh Yeah, it it when you're in the middle of it, it feels like a shitstorm. Mm. But you'll you will come out of the end of it. Like I think um there's that famous quote, This too shall pass. I don't know what that's mm. from. Is it from the Bible, maybe?
2: It might it sounds like a biblical quote. Yeah. Or maybe it's an old novel. You know, it could be one of the yeah. two, couldn't it? It's, Shakespearean. I mean,
0: something. there's people screaming at there device right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. sorry sorry Sorry. (laughs) um but i mean yeah this too shall pass is true of everything it's true Mm. of happiness sadness like Mm. humans have this kind of baseline default feeling of how we feel um and i think i I guess contentment is Mm. is should be your baseline um because the the absolute exhilaration of getting that big deal or signing that client—it's it's fleeting and it's oh, transient. And then then you're back to the to the grind and to the work. And yeah. if you're not in love with the grind and the work, then you just won't you won't find happiness. Well, it's contentment impossible.
2: for me is happiness. I mean, people always ask me the question, usually, how do you value success? It's not financial for me. I've never been driven by money in the first place. It was always the singing or you know the food. So it's knowing that you feel happy with what you do. I think that is such a huge thing to be valued. Like you said, for people listening that are maybe doing their nine to five, they're not happy, find something that you can devote more time to that makes you happy. Because life's too short not to be happy, isn't it?
0: Yeah, we only get one. We do. So if we are trying to live our life to the max and extend it as much as possible, I really want to talk to you about, just quickly because we haven't got much time, but um, I want to talk to you about sugar.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, I love how that came up. Sugar, (laughs) let's do it.
0: (laughs) Um, So how bad for you is sugar?
2: Okay, everything in moderation is the standard response. However, we have a problem in the UK where we are over-consuming what we call free sugars. So when I say free sugars, I mean sugars that aren't found intrinsically inside a piece of fruit, like it's added, it's additional. So you're pouring, let's say, white sugar on top of your cereal. That's the problem with sugar, not the sugars you get in lactose in milk or glucose in carbs, fructose in fruit. It's the extra white refined molecule, which is why we have the sugar tax in the UK, which has actually helped. The government have put pressure on brands now to reformulate products. So we're reducing sugar intake in things like your Heinz baked beans or tomato ketchup, all those kind of things will now have a lot less. But It is a problem because if you consume too much sugar, not only dental health, but there's now links to heart disease. Obviously, adipose tissue, extra body fat storage, because sugar contains a lot of energy. And if you're not very active, which most of us aren't anymore, we lead more sedentary lifestyles than ever before. Mm -hmm. We're not utilizing that source of energy. It's a complex thing. It's based around what we call an obesogenic environment. We're now the largest nation in Europe. Very sad statistic. We know um, one in three children are obese. And that is sad and we have to do something. And I think sugar is a contributing factor to this, but it's not the only one. Lots of different factors contribute to poor health, but sugar every now and again is fine. I mean, I probably have a bit of sugar every single day. You know, I'm a nutritionist. I could easily eat dark chocolate every single day. Um, even this morning, I had loads of medjool dates with my breakfast. because I fancied it, mm. but I know I'm active. I'm walking around. Um, I can deal with that. You've got to gauge your body. But your taste buds adapt, which is quite important to mention as well. So a lot of people aren't aware of the taste of food because they're so used to the sugar in food. But again, it varies on different socioeconomic groups. I mean, we're talking, if you leave London, first of all, it's a whole different food world, different way of life sometimes completely. in different cities maybe can compare Birmingham to a city like um down south. I can't even think of a city down south right now. My brain is, Brighton. there you go, yeah. Brighton, let's go brighton lovely analogy the two bees, compare them both complete different lifestyles complete different cultures and ethnic groups living in different areas that dictates their diet alone it's so complex
0: yeah I th- and the other thing as well is um so i don't crave sugar anymore mm. so now that i've now that i've stopped yeah. like for a three or four days i'll really crave it and i'll Mm. miss it now i'm at the stage where i'm absolutely fine to be without
2: and fruit will taste incredible Mm. like you really appreciate the things that are natural that taste so good when Mm. you've got a clear palate i think
0: and i think a lot of creatives are like fueling themselves on coffee and diet diet drinks Mm. um again because they're easy i mean i only drink water like Mm. i only drink water i don't drink Mm. alcohol i don't drink anything else well Green tea, yeah. green tea and water, and yeah. um, that's all I drink. But um, it is it is hard for people. How do we cut those? Um, should we cut those like diet drinks and coffees at least down?
2: Down, definitely, hundred percent. People are over consuming caffeine. Like there's no tomorrow. Um, the lifestyles change now. We're expected to work more demanding hours. I think people are turning to it because we don't have the education on how to fuel yourselves through food. When I go into offices in the city. I've been there doing a corporate wellness talk when suddenly the drinks trolley will come around the minute I finish talking and they're serving alcohol to everyone at their desks. It's crazy. Um, Yeah, things need to change. Diet drinks, I think, are reducing a little bit on a whole, but people aren't aware of the caffeine in them. It's not just the sugar, it's the Mm. caffeine. Caffeine has a 12-hour shelf life, and that's a long time. It's causing a lot of problems, caffeine. In In my opinion, I see it in my clinic that people thrive when they give it up or they reduce it. But for those of you that enjoy it, don't worry, one or two cups a day is fine, maybe just keep it to that.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so um final thing, I'm going to put you on the spot as you put all of your guests on the spot on your podcast. Um <laughs> what would be your food for thought? It can be Aww. something um it can be something about mindset, it can be something about creativity, it could be something about diet. Okay. What are you currently what's your current favorite thing that you're thinking about?
2: At the moment, my mindset towards or my food for thought today would definitely be comparison and social media. I feel that having just had a breakaway a little bit more from it than usual, I really realized the negative impact it has on my mental health and my perspective on life some days. And you get stuck in a vortex sometimes. I mean, I'm sure people listening, this is a bit crude to say, would probably even go to the bathroom with their phone and scroll their feed. Mm-hmm. It, it's an addiction holding the phone. So comparing yourself to others just try and limit the time you spend on social media platforms if you find yourself in this trap or it doesn't make you feel good when you wake up and control your content use if you're a content giver be very wary of what you're putting out if you're a consumer try and limit the amount you consume that would be my food for thought to be protective protect yourself
0: Look at that off the cuff, amazing, you incredible. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in.
2: Pleasure. Yeah. Where
0: can people find you online?
2: Um, all too easily these days, guys. Um, I'm at Retrition, R H I T R I T I O N, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. I have a book called Renourish. And the second book's out May 16th, um, which is called Top of Your Game with Ronnie O'Sullivan, which is very exciting. And yeah, drop me a message. Say hi
0: thanks for listening we're trying to help a lot of people with this show so we need your help to grow the community and spread
1: our message if you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today or they just need a little nudge in the right direction pass this podcast on to them if you want to hear more then subscribe
0: to us on itunes and if we helped you with anything we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an itunes review it makes a huge difference
1: see ya